This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore an untold story that reveals a new vision of the resurrection with world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan, who discusses his new book, Resurrecting Easter, how the West lost and the East kept the original Easter vision. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Dominic Crossan. He's a former Catholic priest and emeritus professor of religious studies at DePaul University here in Chicago, where he served from 1969 to 1995. From 1985 to 1996, he was co-chair of the Jesus Seminar, a somewhat controversial group of scholars that met twice a year to debate the historicity of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He's written 28 books on the historical Jesus and the Apostle Paul and earliest Christianity. Five of those books have been bestsellers. His most recent book is 2015's How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation. And we're here today to talk about his newest project, Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Easter Vision. It's a book some 15 years in the making and is a collaboration with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan. John Dominic Crossan, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's a pleasure to be with you, David. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, since the Jesus Seminar has been sort of out of the public eye for a few years, and some of my listeners may not be familiar with it, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background and particularly about your work with the Jesus Seminar. So when I say that you were working with the Jesus Seminar from 1985 to 1996, what did that work entail, particularly around looking at the life of Jesus? Basically, there's a fairly massive consensus among scholars at the moment that not everything attributed to Jesus in the Gospels written, you know, 30 to 60 years after him, was said by Jesus. And there's no surprise there. They're called Gospels. Nobody says they're straight histories or biographies. There's the good news about Jesus. So it is, it contains material that was said and done by Jesus, crucifixion, for example. It also contains material that was put on the list of Jesus, by later writers. There's a big consensus of that. I think what the Jesus Seminar did was two things that got people a little excited. They said, all right, what goes into each category? Let's not leave it loose that sometimes Jesus said this and sometimes John's Gospel said that Jesus said this. Who said what, where, and when? And secondly, we must do our work in public. This should not be done in esoteric journals, footnoted to the hills to make certain that no normal human being ever reads it. So we did our work in public. So what we wanted to know was not really an attack on faith. We wanted to know if you had been there in <laughs> Pilate's Jerusalem, as it were, or if, if Pilate had a dossier on Jesus, what would he have known? Leave aside for the moment whether you believe in him or not. What's he saying? What's he doing? What made some people want to him, have him crucified and some people want to have him deified? What could one person do to elicit such 
divergent results. That was really what the Jesus Seminar was about. That was a project that had not a little amount of controversy, it's fair to say. And if you wouldn't mind just revisiting that, what were some of the main objections that were raised to the work of the Jesus Seminar? I think it came from two sides, honestly, from the left and the right. For many people who are rather literalists, if it says that Jesus said this, then Jesus said that. Now, if there's two different versions of the Our Father, one in Luke and one in Matthew, you might want to say, well, which one did he do? So that was controversial to begin with. It was perfectly possible and factual in the New Testament, and nothing wrong with it, by the way, to say that Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He also says in Luke's Gospel, cursed are the rich. We wanted to know, did Jesus actually ever say, cursed are the rich? Or did Luke put that on Jesus' lips? I think it's a rather basic question, and it surprised me how many people even knew that Jesus is supposed to have said, cursed are the rich. We were convinced that Luke said it, by the way, not Jesus. So we were asking questions about what is historical and what is, you might say, evangelical, what is added by the evangelists as they wrote, because, as I said, they are openly and honestly gospels, good news. And nobody can write good news about somebody without making certain decisions. So that was one thing. That got a lot of people who were, I'm going to say literalists or even fundamentalists, excited. That you could even ask this question. If the Bible said Jesus said it, that's it. The other thing I think was many scholars who would have agreed with us, actually, in their journals and conventions and books written for scholars, that this was a valid question, and yes, we could debate it, were appalled that we would do so publicly, that we would say it is not right for scholars to be debating all of these things without the educated lay people knowing they're doing it. So going public, I think, going public created, I think, even more controversy, at least on the left, than discussing historicity did on the right. So we were kind of caught in the middle, and we just went and did our business. And what has happened, actually, is that what was controversial in those days is now kind of mainstream in most of the progressive churches. When I resigned from DePaul in, what was it, in 95, it was because I was getting so many invitations to spend full weekends in churches all around the country, 20, 25 a year, and I just couldn't keep teaching and talking on Sundays in churches because what the Jesus Seminar had started off as being highly controversial was becoming the normalcy of at least progressive Christianity. I'm not talking about fundamentalist Christianity. So in one sense, the Jesus Seminar did its work. Now, if I'm correct, one aspect of this public process of scholarship was that you published books, including a book called The Five Gospels, where you literally color-coded the various phrases and words in both the four Gospels that Christians are familiar with from their Bibles, plus the Gospel of Thomas, the often called the Gnostic Gospel, and those color codings were also controversial. This publication in public was also an important part of the process, not just debating in public, but also making your results very popularly available. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And again, I think, honestly, that was probably the most controversial, because most of the positions that we were taking, say if you had 40 scholars meeting to discuss something, most of the positions taken there would have been published in the major journals if we'd submitted an article to them, and they'd be footnoted to the hilt, and nobody would raise an eyebrow. They'd 
people would disagree, but that's what scholars do. The real important thing was we were doing theological education. It was almost as if doctors had said, well, let's not tell lay people about these microbes because they won't believe it. We can't see them except through our glasses, as it were. So let's not tell them about microbes and viruses and germs. We felt that it was immoral. I'm using the word very, very carefully. It was immoral to discuss all this stuff in scholarship, in our journals, in our conventions, in our meetings, and not let the educated laity who wanted to know about it they didn't want to know about it, then just don't read it. They had to know about it. Then they could make their own decisions about it. For example, if, they're, if you're reading something in John's Gospel and you're kind of horrified of what Jesus is saying about his fellow Jews, we felt it was a very valid question to say, well, did Jesus really say that in the 20s or is John saying that in the 90s? That was a very valid question, should be asked and should be asked publicly. Well, so 20 years on and more now, I think at the time, people were worried that this kind of scholarship, this kind of digging in would be damaging to people's faith. We're now more than 20 years on from the main work of the Jesus Seminar. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to give a candid assessment of how you think the work of the Jesus Seminar now 20 years on has impacted the faith of people in the churches. Has it been damaging as was feared or has it been strengthening and enlivening or has it been neutral? I can only walk, talk now from my own experience, David. Yes. As I said, what started to happen to me in the 90s when my own book, The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant, came out in 91, I started to get invited to come, say, Friday night, all day Saturday. I had to preach on Sunday, by the way, in churches all across this country. To be honest with you, not usually in Roman Catholic churches, but that's a separate issue. I went where I was invited all denominations across this country. This surprised me. I was just doing my, my work and I was, I was writing deliberately for a public, but I didn't intend to get invited to churches. So I had to take early retirement, as I said, in 95, I was what, I was 61 or whatever it was, because I couldn't teach undergraduates, which I love doing, by the way, during the week and then spend the weekend in churches. So I can only say that I was doing, oh, 25, one year I did 37 different churches. Half the Sundays of the year I was in a church somewhere for the whole weekend. So I can only say, well, I didn't set out to do this. I don't have an agent. If nobody invites me, I don't come. So something is happening. My only response has to go with my experience. What was happening was in a way, there was two parts of Christianity whatever name people want to use, I, I don't want to use pejorative language, call it liberal and conservative, call it fundamentalist and progressive, any term. What I was finding is that in these churches, people wanted to know, all right, tell me about the history of Jesus. Now I know the history. I can now make an act of faith. Do I believe in this person or do I reject this person? But I'm starting with the historical basis that was there in the first century, of course, through the first Christians. Obviously, people wanted to know this, and they wanted to know it in the churches. I was not being invited to the parking lot, as it were. And I'm very glad, because quite frankly, at the moment, I think we do need progressive Christianity, because too much of fundamentalist Christianity has, I think, lost its Christianity, to be blunt. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan. We're discussing his new book, co-authored with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan, entitled Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Easter Vision. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan, and we're discussing his new book, co-authored with his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, the book Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Easter Vision. Well, Dr. Crossan, I want to turn now to the book, and in particular to ask, first of all, how this book got conceived, because my understanding is that this was a book that didn't just come a couple of years ago, but you've actually been working on this book with your wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, for some 15 years, so a decade and a half. So help my listeners understand sort of where the germ of the idea for this book came from. It was a very different process. And even saying 15 years would make it sound like we knew what we were doing for 15 years. We didn't. What happened was in 2000, our friends Marianne and Marcus Borg asked us to be co-leaders with them, taking 40 people around Turkey every year in the footsteps of Paul. That's where the way it started. Basically, we were interested in Paul. We weren't thinking at all about anything to do with Easter or Easter imagery or iconography. Starting around 2000 in Cappadocia, we began to see a very unusual image whenever you had scenes from the life of Christ. And we'd recognize all of them. Okay, that's the Annunciation. East and West, we didn't have much difficulty until we came to what we expected to see as the resurrection, and we expected to see the typical Western image of Jesus emerging glorious, magnificent, triumphant from the tomb, with cowering guards, you know, seeing everything or sleeping, but Jesus arising alone. Instead, we began to see this image in which Jesus arises, magnificent, glorious, all the rest of it, but he's taking Adam and Eve namely the whole human race, out of Hades, out of death with him. Let's imagine 2002 in Cappadocia, we're beginning to see this image, and I don't want to hint for a second we're conceiving a book or a future. Mild curiosity, we're really primarily interested in taking 40 people around Turkey in search of Paul. Then slowly but surely we began to realize we keep seeing this image. It doesn't seem like it's just something in Turkey. So then by maybe 2007, we started saying, okay, we're going over to Turkey every year. Let's go a week ahead. This year we go to Romania, this year to Egypt, this year to Russia, this year to wherever, and spend a week and try and chase this image. It was a bit like a detective story. We really did not know what we were doing, to be honest with you. We were kind of following our noses. The book is a detective story, not as a phony setup. If we knew what we were doing when we wrote the book, we could have gone over there in six weeks and done everything. Basically, it was 2014 before we approached Harper, our editor, to say, we think we have a book, but it depends absolutely on the iconography. That's why Sarah's name is on the cover, not just to keep domestic tranquility or something else, but because it was her photographs, her iconography, taken back here after our trips, put up on our big screen where you could see it in great detail. 
that convinced me this is very different. This is Eastern Christianity's Easter image, and it's very different from the West, and that creates huge theological problems. So it was only in 2014, as I said, that we went to Harper and said, we think we have a book, but will you guarantee us not to stick these colored images at the back somewhere or in the middle, color insert that's cheaper, I know. Will you give us a book in which the images will be throughout the whole book, there's 140 of them and 190 pages of text, in which people can see the images because the argument comes from the images. And they did it, and quite frankly, I think they did a magnificent job on presenting the imagery. So this began in the year 2000, and it began largely with you just looking at images that were there on the ground and the different types of art that you encountered. And this wasn't contemporary art. This was art from the ancient world. But it began to raise for you a certain set of questions. And if you could, in brief pricey for the listeners, what was the fundamental question that these ancient images began to raise for you and your wife? The first one it raised immediately is why do we have this huge difference with regard to the resurrection of Christ alone? We would go, for example, into a church like the catacombs in Rome in the volcanic soil of Cappadocia. We'd be surrounded with magnificent imagery from the life of Christ, and we'd look up there and we could say, that's the Annunciation, there's no problem, that's the entry into Jerusalem, that's the Last Supper, that's the Crucifixion. We'd recognize every one of them. You know, they're slightly different because they're Eastern from, say, the 800s, the 900s, thousand-year-old. But, yeah, we'd recognize them. Nobody said, you know, who's that guy on the donkey going in with people putting their clothes in front of him? Until we came to the most important one of them all, the resurrection. And then we were ready and expected to see the word maybe resurrection or some word. We ran into the Greek word on the frescoes, anastasis. And that comes from two words, anastasis, which means literally uprising. And it has a little edge to it, like in English, an uprising. You usually don't think of getting up from the bed, out of the bed in the morning as an uprising. Uh, uprising has a slight political edge to it. You might say to the Romans, he's back and he's at it again. And then we started to notice especially this huge difference between the Western image where Jesus rises alone and this Eastern image where always, always he has Adam and Eve. You might get a few cases where ungraciously, I would say, or patriarchally, Eve is omitted, but basically his wounded hand, the wounded hand of Christ, reaches out to grasp, you can see this on the cover of our book, the limp wrist of Adam and the limp wrist of Eve, because he's raising them from Hades, from death, actually, from death. And we're asking ourselves, what on earth does it mean to show Jesus, the crucified Jesus, he's usually carrying a small cross, raising the human race from death? Not a question of do you believe, it's a question of understanding. It's as if you're looking, say, at an advertisement. What is the message of this advertisement? What is it trying to tell us? And it was a huge, I'm going to use the word discrepancy, or the huge divergence of discrepancy is an unfair term, between the Western official traditional Easter image and Eastern Christianity's official traditional Easter image. That was the germ of the problem. Why 
How come? What does it mean? And if, if I'm hearing you correctly, the germ of that problem is that in the West, we have tended to think of Jesus being raised as an isolated person in an isolated event, and that that somehow has been removed from the day-to-day life of humanity. And if I'm hearing you correctly, what you were seeing in these images in the East, in Cappadocia and other places, was a more inclusive, collective sense of resurrection? Is that what I'm hearing you saying? And that's the difference that you're wanting to point to? Yes, it is. In fact, when I started actually the writing of the book, I started using the word communal resurrection. And then I began to realize, wait a minute, and I was halfway through the book, Adam and Eve aren't communal. It's not just there are two other people, like you might have, say, Moses and Abraham. If Jesus is taking Adam and Eve out with him by the hand, that's the human race. Adam and Eve are the biblical prototypes, as it were. They represent the human race. It's like if you saw Uncle Sam represents America, or John Bull represents England. Adam and Eve is the human race. So I started to insist on universal resurrection. That what we're asking here is how do you imagine the resurrection of the human race with Jesus? Now, Jesus is never just one of the guys. He's the one leading them out by the hand or lifting them up by the hand. What kind of a claim is made when you're looking at the crucified Jesus lifting the human race out of death? Not out of hell, by the way, out of Hades, the place of death. And poor old Hades is just, uh, he's kind of like the, he's not an evil character, he's just like the warden. He's the prison keeper of death, and he's trying to hold the gates against Jesus, and Jesus comes in and liberates the human race. So that's the heart of the book. How do we have this difference? Why do we have this difference? And what's the meaning and value of the difference? And also, which of these visions, if I could put it that way, is more in conformity with the New Testament vision itself? Some of the Corinthians asked Paul to draw them an image of the actual moment of the resurrection. Would Paul have come up with the Western image, the individual Jesus, or the Eastern image, universal Jesus? That's a major issue, too, because I'm not leaving biblical studies for art history at all, or even for art theology. I'm interested in which of these two images is in continuity with the New Testament and what it means. Well, and I want to come back to the Pauline question in just a moment, but to stay with this just for a second. So when we see Adam and Eve, we're not just seeing the progenitors of all humanity, but we're also seeing in the Old Testament sort of narrative, we're seeing those that created all the problems that we have inherited that Jesus came to solve. And so another meaning theologically of this image, if I'm following you, is that Christ is undoing not just the the interior sin, but Christ is also restoring the relationship and saying, now you can come and live again. Now you can be part of life again. This sin that bounds you back is now no longer operative. Am I, am I reading that correctly or am I misreading that? Well, to be honest with you, it's low on the sin. I don't mean that's not important. It's really death we're talking about. Because in the Eastern tradition, as distinct from the Western tradition, Adam and Eve are not these bad people who corrupted the whole human race. That's very much in the Christian West. It's it's not really in the Jewish tradition either, by the way. That's why you can go through the entire Hebrew scriptures and nobody keeps referring to Adam and Eve as the baddies who started the whole thing off. It's really about liberation from death. Now, if that liberates you from sin as well, Hades is is what's shown there as, it's really shown as a prison house. There's no connotation of punishment. There's no flames, as it were. It has locks and bars and bolts flying in all directions. The image you're getting is that somebody 
powerful enough to break into a prison and liberate the inhabitants. You don't really get an emphasis on sin. You get an emphasis on death. But to give you for one example, going from imagery to texts, in the Gospel of Nicodemus, which tells this story, and it's a, it's a rather late text. It's from this, probably from the 600s. In this text, you have Satan boasting that he's going to bring Jesus down to hell. And so he's already thinking of hell. And poor old Hades is complaining, don't let him down here. He'll liberate everyone. Don't let him down here. He's too powerful. He'll empty the place. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan. We're discussing his new book, co-authored with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan, entitled Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Easter Vision. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan. We're discussing his new book, co-authored with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan, entitled Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. Well, a moment ago, Dr. Crossan, you were discussing how Paul would have answered the question, what did the resurrection look like? But we have from Paul's writings some answer to that already. We have this notion from Paul's writings of the first fruits of the resurrection. And when I was in seminary, and maybe this is a result of some of your work in the Jesus Seminar, I was told by my professors that the Jewish idea of the resurrection was often this same kind of communal resurrection, this kind of uprising that you were talking about in the last segment, and that Paul was trying to explain to Christians how Jesus could be individually raised when everyone was was expecting this communal resurrection. So it seems that you're absolutely right, that this was a communal event and that the West has lost this. But have I missed something in that Pauline explanation? Have I missed something in that Pauline understanding? Or has the West missed something in that Pauline understanding? You got it right. And your teacher is to be credited because in 1 Corinthians, for example, Paul makes this argument. If there is no general resurrection of the whole human race, there cannot be one of Jesus. And if there's none of Jesus, there cannot be one of the whole human race. And you want to say, wait a minute, Paul, couldn't this be a special favor? Jesus is the Messiah, after all, the Holy One of God. Couldn't he have a special resurrection just for him? And Paul would have said, no, 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 no. That's an ascension you're talking about. Paul would have said in our tradition, Enoch or maybe even Moses, though that's more debated, and certainly Elijah, were very holy people, and they were taken up to God, call it ascension or assumption. The Greeks would call it apotheosis. The Romans might call it divinatio. That's in our tradition. Individuals, of course, can ascend to God. And the Romans would have said, well, we have that of our hero Romulus, not because of his holiness, but because of his military power. He was taken up to the gods, too. We would call that ascension or apotheosis. There is no concept, let me put this bluntly, in Pre-Christian Judaism, are therefore in Christian Judaism at the beginning, 
of a resurrection for one person alone. That's an ascension. If you're talking resurrection, you're talking of the human race. You said the first fruits. So the extraordinary thing that Paul would be saying is that the general resurrection has begun with Jesus. Now, immediately any good Jewish scholar would say, well, wait a minute. That's all right for the future, maybe. But what about the past? Jesus was not the first holy Jew who died on a Roman cross. He was not our first martyr. So what happened to everyone before Jesus? Did he resurrect alone? So the very word resurrection brings clouds of communal, collective, and universality with it. So yes, I think we have lost that continuity. And I don't know whether Jesus has been sucked into the superhero delusions of the West, that one person does everything, whereas the East being the East, of course, and much closer to the Jewish roots of Christianity, has held on firmly and still does. We were in Belgrade Cathedral the weekend after Easter, and people, there was a red carpet from the front of the entrance all the way to the iconostasis, and red ropes, you know, guiding you in, and everyone who came in for the service went first up to an icon, and it was an icon of the Universal Resurrection, it was on a stand, and they touched it with their forehead and with their lips. And so this is not ancient Eastern Christianity. This is Eastern Christianity from the year 700, when we get the first images, up to and including now. You've talked about this notion of anastasis, the uprising. I want to introduce another term from Eastern Christianity, apocatastasis, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but am I correct that in Eastern Christianity there's a notion that Christ's work in the world and Christ's work in the universe helps to, in some ways, divinize or bring the fallen world into a more blessed state? And is that kind of what we're seeing in these icons of the lifting up of humanity and the lifting up of of these groups into Christ's resurrection, is this in some way lifting the world to godliness, or am I, am I reading that wrong? No, I think that's absolutely correct. Just to start with the text in Colossians, this is kind of the belated Paul or pseudo-Paul, but in Colossians he's saying, you have been raised with Christ. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, have been. He's talking to living Christians in the first century, have been raised by Christ. Now, if you go back to the image that we're talking about, you find that Jesus is, he has a halo, of course, as always, but round about him is what's called a mandorla, because it's shaped like, a, like an Italian almond, and this is a kind of an aura of heavenly light. It's all around him. It's like a circle or an oval around him, and he's reaching out to grasp Adam and Eve. You can see it on the cover of our book, and he grasps them by the wrist, and he wrenches them inside this heavenly aureola. So yes, in the image itself, He's not just liberating them out of Hades, and that's nice. He's liberating them out of death into life, into his own divine life. Now, that, of course, does not in any way take away our human freedom. When Paul says, you have been raised, Paul would probably say, though he might be polite not to say it, would you start trying to live accordingly, please? <laughs> You're supposed to be leading raised lives, and, of course, I'm not convinced 2,000 years later that Paul would be too impressed by how we're doing. So, yes, I think absolutely in Eastern Christianity and in the New Testament itself, human beings are called into 
another world, not another world off in the future in heaven, but another world down here below, the world which God so loved, as John says. So we're, in one sense, we're being called out of the world into the world. In the Bible, as you know, sometimes the world is a bad place, the world is civilization, let us say, but the world is creation. It's how we're supposed to live. So yeah, I think it's absolutely correct to say Christians are being born again into divinization. If, and it's a big if, they live accordingly. Your colleagues in the in the Jesus Seminar, Funk and Borg and others, and you yourself, have written about the political implications both of how Jesus lived his life while he was here on earth and what that might or should mean for Christians now. And so when you use colorful language like translating anastasis as uprising, that has definite political implications because an uprising, and you know, I'm speaking to you from Chicago where we have the Haymarket anarchist riots in our history and those other kinds of uprisings, the riots in the 1960s. Those uprisings were political events, and they were designed to change the basic order of society. How do you see this playing out politically? How should this play out politically in the lives of Christians today? And this is also controversial, because I hear people saying, no, no, let's, let's, you, you contaminated this book by bringing in politics. Let me be very clear. Jesus was crucified. The Romans did not crucify people for religion. They did not crucify people for philosophy. They crucified people for activism. Now, let me make a huge distinction here, because it's absolutely important when we're talking about uprising. Roman policy was, if you are a violent rebel, like Barabbas in the story of Mark chapter 14, we will grab you and all your closest supporters we can arrest, and we crucify you in a nice, neat row to make our point. Romans crucified leaders of violent, <laughs> they crucified, what, 2,000 in Jerusalem in 4 BCE, and in 66, 500 a day till they ran out of trees. Now, Roman policy towards nonviolent revolution, that's what they call it, nonviolent resistance, we might say, was you pick off the leader. That's in their law, where it says, if anyone raises tumult among the people or arouses the people, according to their rank, they should be either crucified, thrown to the beasts, or, obviously, if they're important, exiled to an island. So from Pilate alone, if I have nothing else going for me but the evidence, I know that Jesus, from the Roman point of view, was leading unarmed, nonviolent resistance to Roman violence. Pilate got it right. And Pilate is the clearest proof in the entire New Testament that Jesus was, at least from the Roman point of view, nonviolent resistance. So uprising, any of those terms, revolutionary, I, a lot of people were scandaled when I called Jesus a revolutionary because they thought immediately that Che Guevara is the only type of revolutionary. I thought we learned from Martin Luther King that there's two types of revolutionaries, not just a revolutionary and a nice person. There's two ways of talking to power. And a Jesus doesn't talk truth to power. He talks power to power. What's the power of nonviolent resistance? So before I even get to talk about resurrection, to understand the historicity of Jesus, I understand that he's announcing, of course, the kingdom of God as a collaborative operation between God and humanity with nonviolent 
resistance to violence as a solution to our violence. So when I get to use a term like uprising or revolutionary or rebel, I am talking absolutely on the cusp between religion and politics. And, you know, in the first century, every single silver denarius said that Caesar, be it Augustus or Tiberius, is the son of God. I mean, when Jesus held in his hand the coin of the tribute, I don't know if he, if he grinned a little bit, but on the front it said that Caesar was the son of God. Now, is that political or religious? And if he flipped it over on the back, it said that Caesar was the sumus pontifex, the supreme pontifex, bridge builder between heaven and earth. Caesar is the supreme high priest of Roman imperial theology. I do not know in the first century, on any deep level, I'm not talking on a surface level, how you separate religion from politics, because Jesus would have said, I speak for justice. And the Romans would have said, sure, so do we. And that's the challenge that you're really getting in this image. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan. We're discussing his new book, co-authored with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan, entitled Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with the world-renowned Bible scholar John Dominic Crossan. We're discussing his new book, co-authored with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan, entitled Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. You've been working on this project, and admittedly, you said at the beginning of the of the interview that you didn't initially conceive of it as a book project, but you've been sort of working on this question and, and hunting these images with your wife for the past 15 years or so. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling me and my listeners, what was your favorite part of this process? As you look back now with the finished book, what stands out to you as one of the moments or one of the episodes or events that most touched you or stays with you as being the most positive? Well, in a way, we started the book by, by a week we spent in the small village churches in the mountains of Cyprus, the Trudas Mountains. Not these great big basilicas like Monreale and Sicily. You're in small little village or monastic churches. I mean, they're large huts, if I could be blunt, with big, steep roofs. And when you walk inside them, they're totally fresco. A lot of them have been restored because they're off the beaten track in mountain villages, and so they haven't been vandalized. And you find yourself totally surrounded by frescoes. On the first level are all the local saints, so you're kind of standing there with them. Then on the upper level, you see the life of Christ. You're surrounded totally by the life of Christ from Annunciation to Ascension, and there, of course, is the Anastasis, where you expect it to be. And then as you mount up higher in the church, the angels are up above, and in the very peak of the little mini-dome, as it were, is Christ. And Christ is always holding the book, the Gospel. And by the way, he's never reading the Gospel. 
He is the norm of the gospel. The gospel points to him. He doesn't point to the gospel. He is the norm of the Bible. That's why he's never reading it. So you find yourself totally immersed with images all around you. And it's not much bigger than, than a big apartment. <laughs> so I think of all the experiences in those tiny mountain villages in Cyprus, and it takes you hours to get from one place to another because it's down this hill and up that hill and over this river. I think that gave us a feeling for Eastern Christianity, more, to be honest with you, than the absolutely magnificent, say, cathedrals of Norman Sicily, which are in their own way absolutely magnificent and breathtaking. But these small little local churches where the inhabitants, the local peasants, when they weren't the church, they lived inside the story, if I could put it that way. The church was like the little miniature of their world with their local saints and the, the life of Jesus and all the icons. And it's a way of religion. I think we kind of lost when we go into our big marbleized basilicas. And they're gorgeous. I mean, they are gorgeous, but then they're a little bit gorgeous like the foyer of a very expensive hotel is gorgeous. So in one sense, I think the experience in the mountain villages is the one that moved us most deeply. Well, it's my habit as we begin to come to the end of the interview to ask my guests two questions. One is to ask what still frustrates you and then to pivot from that after you've answered that question to ask what it is that still keeps you hopeful. And so I'm going to ask you, Dr. Cross, and after these many years of studying these subjects, what is it that still brings you frustration? I suppose what brings me frustration is one thing we mention now. And people say, well, this is about religion. Now, don't, don't, don't contaminate this with social, economic, political stuff. This is, this is about religion. As if religion was somewhere like a vacation from life. You know, a lovely place to visit, and it's nice, and it's like going on vacation, but you have to get back to reality. That, at least, is not Christianity. Other religions must speak for themselves. But Jesus, as I said, was not crucified religion. He was crucified for religio-politics, if you will. That's a bit of a frustration when people say, oh, no, keep politics out. Then we're not talking about Christianity. We're talking about a different religion. And most hopeful is the consistent resistance. I, I think in the human heart, in the human spirit, there is a thirst for justice. Okay, we say in our Pledge of Allegiance, liberty and justice. Let me say justice first. Let me put justice first. There is a thirst for justice. That is why empires come and go with dreary sequence. That's why you had in the Bible the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Alexandrians, the Macedonians and the Romans. And they all come and go and they leave behind them very often debris and slaughter. And I would hope that simply that sweep of history, which the, the Jews already could tell in Daniel chapter 7, was a bankrupt sequence, that there is an alternative out there, that there is a possibility, because it's still around, we've never managed to damp it, that there has to be a just world, and by a just world I mean not determined by, say, a 1%, but when the 99% say, yeah, this is fair enough, I'm getting my fair share. Yeah, you're getting more, but that's all right. But I'm getting a fair share. Justice means a fair share, put in theological terms, of God's world for all God's people. And if you want to know whether we have it or not, you ask not the 1%, 
for whom the world is always just, was in the first century too, in the crucified Jesus, are in the 21st. Ask the 99%, is this fair? If it's not, then what we have to face in Christianity, God is not on our side. Well, and if I'm hearing you correctly, I heard in that the, the kernel of hope that you would like to see this type of world enacted. Is that, is that correct, or would you characterize your hope in some other way? No, exactly. Exactly. I think when Jesus said something like, you take the sword, you perish by the sword, it would have been so easy to say to him, oh, come on, you're such a liberal, Jesus. No, get over it. Uh, the sword is a necessary part of life. And now, we, as I said, 3,000 years we have the bomb, not the sword. And we, we get better at everything, it seems to me. We don't get more evil. I don't believe that for a second. We just get far more dangerous toys. Nonviolent resistance to violence, quite frankly, is the salvation of the human race. And I have no trouble using words like redemption, salvation, because I'm talking about this world, not somewhere else. Well, John Dominic Crossan, I've been reading your work since I was in seminary nearly 20 years ago, and it has always been a, a source of insight for me, but it's also been a deep source of challenge. And I, I'm so honored to have a chance to talk to you today. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me and to my listeners. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure. Anytime. We've been speaking with John Dominic Crossan. He's a former Catholic priest and emeritus professor of religious studies at DePaul University, where he taught from 1969 to 1995 here in Chicago. From 1985 to 1996, he was co-chair of the Jesus Seminar, a somewhat controversial group of scholars who met twice a year to debate the historicity of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He's written 28 books on the historical Jesus and the Apostle Paul and earliest Christianity. Five of those books have been bestsellers. His most recent book was 2015's How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation. And we've been speaking today about his most recent book just coming out, Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. It's a book some 15 years in the making and was a collaboration with his wife, the photographer Sarah Sexton Crossan. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.
So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com.